You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and thank you for joining the American Revolution. Today, Episode 6, The British Take Charge and the Battle of the Monongahela. Last week, I talked about young George Washington's attempt to push the French out of the Ohio Valley with his Virginia militia. That mission ended with his force killing French soldiers just sent to talk with him. Then his men captured at Fort Necessity. Washington had to sign a document taking responsibility for the assassination of the French officer, giving France a justification to go to war with Britain. By September of 1754, Word of that summer's disastrous events in the Ohio Valley had reached Britain. The government decided to take decisive action. Thomas Pelham Holmes, the Duke of Newcastle, had just become Prime Minister following the death of his brother earlier that year. Newcastle was a longtime Whig politician who had been Secretary of the Southern Department, which was in charge of colonial affairs in North America. He understood international relations well and was a strong proponent of expanding the colonies in North America. Newcastle believed that France was pretty well blocked in Europe through a series of strategic alliances against them. A swift and decisive action in America to recapture that disputed territory should be possible without engulfing Europe in another major war. He worked with William Augustus, the Duke of Cumberland, and King George II's son to develop a plan of attack Cumberland had a reputation as a hardened soldier who fought aggressively and without mercy. A little over a decade earlier, when Cumberland had brutally crushed a Jacobite uprising in 1742, people started calling him Butcher Cumberland. Newcastle and Cumberland did not always agree on foreign policy issues, but it would be helpful to the plan if Newcastle could get the Duke to support an aggressive policy that would decisively secure the North American colonies. The king greatly valued his son's views and relied on him as an important military and political advisor. Unfortunately, once Newcastle brought Cumberland onto the team, Cumberland brought Secretary of War Henry Fox, who was a political enemy of Newcastle, onto the team as well. Cumberland and Fox developed an even more aggressive plan than Newcastle had intended. At that point, though, Newcastle had no choice but to go along with it. The team put forth an aggressive four-part plan. One army would advance onto the Ohio Valley and take the French forts recently built there, as Washington had tried to do. A second would take out Fort Niagara on Lake Ontario, near Niagara Falls. A third would assault Fort St. Frederick at the tip of Lake Champlain. And a fourth would take out the French forts on the Isthmus that kept the British soldiers in Nova Scotia from encroaching onto the mainland Canada. Such a plan not only required a significant commitment of money and resources, it required top military leaders to coordinate the assaults. 
Major General Edward Braddock received command of all British forces in North America. Braddock was a professional soldier with a solid reputation. He was the son of a British general of the same name. The younger Braddock joined the Army at age 15 and served with distinction as a lieutenant colonel in the War of Austrian Succession in the 1740s. His promotion to Major General came in 1754 along with his command of North American forces. Braddock had under his command three regiments in Nova Scotia, seven independent companies stationed in New York and South Carolina, two more regiments had been deactivated at the end of King George's War and would be reactivated to draw in recruits. Two more Irish regiments of regulars would travel to Virginia to provide even more resources. Braddock would coordinate all four simultaneous assaults using these regulars as well as any militia or Indian warriors he deemed appropriate to supplement his needs. The colonies would have to foot the bill to pay for all of these operations. The ministry authorized Braddock to compel colonial governors to provide for a common military fund, as well as provide quarters, supplies, and transport within the colonies. Governors would help with recruiting for the two local regiments, as well as provide militia. All the major players in the British government formed a consensus that this strategy would fortify British control of North America, force France to deploy more forces to North America, thus weakening French military threats to the British allies in continental Europe, and would create a unified military authority that could coordinate the resources of all the American colonies into a single purpose. It sounded great on paper. In early 1755, General Braddock set sail for America with his two Irish regiments, with the intent of winning several swift and decisive victories with his superior numbers of regular troops before the French had a chance to react and reinforce their North American forces. While the British attempted to unify efforts against the French in North America, the colonies themselves remained hopelessly divided. Colonial leaders attempted to coordinate their own response to the growing threats. In late 1754, seven colonies, along with the Iroquois Confederacy and other key tribes, met in Albany, New York, to discuss plans to create a united front against French encroachment. This later became known as the Albany Congress. It soon became apparent, though, that they could not agree on much of anything. Pennsylvania and Connecticut wanted to fight with each other over the Wyoming Valley, millions of acres in what is today northeastern Pennsylvania. New England colonies refused to be dragged into a scheme that would force them to commit money and resources to protect the New York border from attack, and no colony south of Maryland even bothered to attend. Notably absent, Virginia claimed most of the land for themselves and would be just as opposed to encroachment by Pennsylvania into the Ohio Valley as it would the French. Despite the contention, several budding colonial leaders, including Indian trader William Johnson, Massachusetts Governor William Shirley, and his protege, Thomas Hutchinson, Pennsylvania Delegate Benjamin Franklin, and New York Lieutenant Governor James Delancey, created what was called the Plan of Union. The plan created a single continental government with a head appointed by the king and delegates from every colony. This united body would coordinate military action across all colonies for common defense. The proposal, though, met with near universal rejection by every colonial legislature that considered it. None of them wanted to cede power to a central authority. Doing so would mean a loss of political power by the colonial governments 
and forced them to provide men and money to military adventures that did not impact them. Further, as I just mentioned, many of the colonies still had land disputes with each other and were in no hurry to create a central authority that might deprive them of their claims. So the plan went nowhere. The only hope for a coordinated action rested on the introduction of a strong, politically astute leader that could force the colonies to unite. The man chosen to be that leader, General Braddock, arrived in Virginia in February 1755. As a military leader, Braddock had a reputation as a capable administrator and strict disciplinarian. Throughout that spring, Braddock sent out directives instructing the various colonies as to what money, resources, and provisions they would be required to supply the general war effort. At the same time, he began implementing the plan of attack he had laid out in London. Braddock would personally lead the 41st and 44th Irish regiments, along with Virginia militia, up the same path that Colonel Washington had taken the prior year. He would take Fort Duquesne and then work his way up the rest of the French forts in the Ohio Valley till he reached the Great Lakes. Massachusetts Governor William Shirley received a commission as Major General as well and became second-in-command to Braddock in the theater of operations. Shirley would lead the reactivated 50th and 51st regiments recruited from the colonies against the French fort at Niagara. William Johnson, an Indian trader from western New York, would lead a command of Mohawk warriors and other provincial soldiers from mostly New England and New York against Fort St. Frederick. A fourth expedition of New Englanders would assault the French forts in Nova Scotia. Meanwhile, Admiral Edward Boscoigne would use the British fleet to prevent the French from bringing any reinforcements down the St. Lawrence River to any of the French colonies. Almost all the colonists, including Shirley and Johnson, thought this whole big plan was far too unrealistic. The colonies almost uniformly failed to provide money, men, and material needed for the various military actions. Undeterred, Braddock simply purchased the needed supplies on credit and figured he would stick the bill to the colonies later. As an aside, one of the roadblocks in Virginia toward funding any military campaign was something called the Pistole Fee Controversy. Essentially, Virginia Governor Dinwiddie was trying to extract a fee of one pistole, which is less than one British pound, to sign all land patents. He had the approval of the Board of Trade in London, as well as the Virginia Council. But the locally elected House of Burgesses in Virginia balked, issuing a resolution that read in part, Resolved, that whoever shall pay a pistole as a fee to the governor for use of the seal to patents for lands shall be deemed a betrayer of the rights and privileges of the people. Dinwiddie essentially responded, well, okay, you don't pay the fee, you don't get a land patent, meaning you had no proof of land ownership. The governor and legislature were stuck in this standoff, which prevented virtually anything else from getting done. Not even paying for the war seemed to break the stalemate. It's just an interesting example of how touchy the colonists could be about virtually any government fee. Now, as I said, Braddock wisely tried to ignore all the petty political squabbling and focused on his military mission. Leading what was considered the main thrust of operation, Braddock began to move his army towards Fort Duquesne in the Ohio Valley. Two colonists, who proved valuable in this effort, at least, were Benjamin Franklin who was able to provide much of the supplies needed for the operation, and George Washington, who volunteered to serve as an aide-de-camp to General Braddock. Despite his failures the year earlier, 
Washington came highly recommended and was clearly familiar with the land from which he had retreated. Washington saw Braddock as a mentor who might assist with his goal of eventually obtaining a commission in the regular army. Now Braddock knew that his professional soldiers would fight much better than any provincials. He also had far more of them than the 150 militiamen who went up against the French in the previous year. Braddock had two full regiments of Irishmen, over 1,000 professional soldiers. Local recruitment had increased the regimental numbers to around 1,500. He also had companies from Virginia and Maryland to provide assistance. In all, Braddock commanded a force of around 2,200 men. Among his officers and men were a great many who would eventually go on to play key military roles in the Revolution. Aside from Washington, the expedition included Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Gage, the future British commander in North America. Also present were future American generals Charles Lee, Horatio Gates, William Mercer, Daniel Morgan, and Adam Stephan, as well as future frontiersman Daniel Boone. Missing from his forces, though, were any significant numbers of Indian warriors. As Braddock assembled his men at Fort Cumberland, formerly called Wills Creek, he had an opportunity to take on hundreds of warriors into his command. Six different tribal chiefs came to meet with Braddock. One even brought with him detailed plans about the defenses at Fort Duquesne. These tribes were eager to see the French forts removed from the Ohio Valley so that the pro-English Iroquois Confederation could reassert control. Braddock informed them that if the forts were captured, the British would take control of the forts and that much of the land would be used for British colonization. Not interested in helping the British acquire land, virtually all of the Lowell tribes walked away. Commenting on Benjamin Franklin's concerns about the lack of native support, Braddock told him, Savages may indeed be a formidable enemy for your raw American militia, but upon the king's regular and disciplined troops, sir, it is impossible that they should make an impression. Now Braddock had some reason for confidence. His forces of regulars and militia already heavily outnumbered the French force at Duquesne. That force of less than a thousand soldiers was overwhelmingly Canadian militia and not French regular troops and the remainder of the roughly 1,600-man force were just Indians. A few of the Indian warriors were from local tribes, mostly Shawnee, but the bulk of the native contingents were not even from the area. They were French-allied tribes from other parts of Canada, Ottawas, Mississaugas, Wyandots, Potawatomis. These were all people from quite a distance away and not, didn't really have any sort of home court advantage. And Fort Duquesne itself offered little advantage for any sort of large battle, since the fort could only house about 200 troops. The French commander at Fort Duquesne received intelligence about the large British force preparing to attack him and developed plans to destroy the fort and retreat. Before doing so, however, he thought it was worth an attempt to try to ambush the British army in the field. But he only sent a contingent of about half his force, over 800 men, to attack the advancing British. Of those, only about 100 were French regulars, another 150 were Canadian militia, and the remainder Indians. Braddock's advance had slowed to a crawl because of the need for the army to carry so many wagons and heavy artillery through the woods, over mountains, and through swamps. He moved forward with about 1,300 to 1,500 of his best soldiers, historians differ on the exact number, with the remaining third of his force lagging behind to deal with the wagons and heavy equipment. By dividing his force in this way, he could attack the force with infantry as soon as possible, 
but still have the artillery for a siege a short time later if it was needed. By July 9th, Braddock's main force arrived about 10 miles from Fort Duquesne. Lieutenant Colonel Thomas Gage led an advance force of about 300 infantry to protect another 250 men who were cutting trees and creating a road for the main column. Around 1 p.m. that day, the British made contact with the French advance force sent out to attack them. The ensuing battle, known as the Battle of the Monongahela, is one that historians often use to point to the stupidity of European tactics of war in the American wilderness. The Indians, allied with the French, immediately scattered behind trees and other cover, taking shots at the British, who remained shoulder to shoulder in lines as they fired into the forests, where they rarely even saw a target. The result was a one-sided slaughter. The Indians picked off most of the officers and killed large numbers of troops. General Braddock was able to rally his troops for a time, but after he received a mortal wound in the lung, the British lines began to break. Now, this might be a good time to ask the question, why on earth did anyone think it was a good military tactic to stand up in the open, shoulder to shoulder, and make oneself an easy target? Part of the reason, I guess, was motivation. European soldiers were often uninterested in the outcome of a war. It was mostly there to determine which ruler would be exploiting them next, at least for the enlisted men. Left to their own devices, they had every incentive to flee the battlefield at the earliest opportunity. So, maintaining lines with officers in charge of them prevented most of them from running. The lines also made some sense given the weapons of the day. Muskets were terribly inaccurate. The only chance of hitting anyone was to have everyone shoot at once from a concentrated point and hope that at least some of the balls would make it to the enemy. Keeping good lines also prevented the enemy from getting around you and hitting you from behind. So, whichever side broke its lines first and ran would likely be the ones decimated by the charge of the victorious lines chasing them down. I guess this also leads to a second question as to why muskets were so terribly inaccurate. Much more accurate rifles had been around for over 200 years, but were almost never used in battle. The reason was that loading a rifle was much more difficult and time-consuming. The ammunition literally had to be hammered down the barrel of the rifle because the rifled ball had to be the same size as the barrel. As a result, it could take several minutes to load just one shot. By contrast, a musket could be loaded and fired about three times, maybe even four times in one minute. The time it would take to reload a rifle was more than it would take for the enemy to run a hundred yards across the field and bayonet you. Also, after a few shots, a residue would build up in rifled barrels. This made them impossible to load again until cleaned. It was not until the mid-1800s that balls were developed that could expand on firing, thus making loading a rifle just as fast as a musket. So in the 1700s, rifles made sense for hunting, but not combat. Back to the battle, though. It seems that many of the Indians did have hunting rifles, and while this prevented them from maintaining a sustained assault against the British, it did allow them to pick off the officers and others from a greater distance. Since they dispersed in the woods, it made it difficult for the British lines to charge them, and so, firing from a distance, it was a pretty one-sided battle. After Braddock died, the British lines, which had already taken heavy casualties, began to fall back. At that point, the Indians came out of the woods and charged at the British with their knives and tomahawks, 
causing the British to break their lines and run for their lives. Now, Washington was present for all this and really tried to coordinate the retreat. By all accounts, he behaved very gallantly himself. He had several horses shot out from under him and later discovered four different bullets had clipped his uniform, though none actually hit his body. He was, however, unable to rally or get the troops to stand up against the French and Indians charging at them. So the men spent two days falling back to reach the rear guard of 800 soldiers who had been handling the wagons and equipment. They decided then to destroy what they could not quickly carry and spent the next five days making their way all the way back to Fort Cumberland. Of the 1,300 or so British who were engaged in battle, records show that 456 killed and another 422 wounded. Out of the 86 officers, an amazingly high 63 were killed or wounded. Now, the high death rates in this battle indicates that it's more likely than not that many of those who were listed as killed probably survived the initial battle, but were killed as the victorious Indians took scalps and killed any wounded who were too harmed to be taken as slaves. By contrast, the French and Indians only suffered about 30 killed and 57 wounded. Ironically, though, after the battle, the British had their best opportunity to take Fort Duquesne. Once the Indians had secured scalps, prisoners, and captured equipment, they decided they were done and went home. Fort Duquesne's defenses were reduced to a few hundred men, mostly Canadian militia. This is exactly why professional officers did not like to rely on Indians. The British still had over 1,300 troops. Had they not destroyed their cannon and fled, but instead advanced on the fort after regrouping, they probably could have easily won. But they did not know the Indians had left. They had lost their commander and were probably too terrified to return to try again. The result was a humiliating loss for the British. The surviving British regulars fled all the way back to Philadelphia. There, they demanded to be put up in winter quarters, despite the fact that it was July, but they had decided they were done for the fighting season. Most of the militia deserted as well. Only a few hundred men remained at Fort Cumberland. Local Indians in the Ohio Valley had no choice but to throw their lot in with the French. Indian war parties continued to raid any British farms or settlements set up anywhere west of the Alleghenies, as far down as the Shenandoah Valley there was no force available to stop them. So any British colonist that was not already killed got the message and moved back east. The French now decisively controlled the Ohio Valley. Next week, we'll take a look at some of the other military engagements of 1755 and then get into the British Plan B after losing their fight in the Ohio Valley. My name is Greg Jackson. I'm a historian, professor, and the creator of History That Doesn't Suck, a podcast that provides a complete overview of U.S. history through storytelling, yet keeps the rigor you'd expect in a university class. Starting with 22-year-old George Washington in his first battle, join me for a chronological telling of the United States' story. It's unlikely revolution, fractious civil war, tenacious inventors, brave reformers, and more. With more than 100 episodes, you can already binge listen your way through the progressive era. Find History That Doesn't Suck wherever you get your podcasts.